Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoiseshek podcast. The show you're about to listen to was recorded yesterday and I mentioned in it an appeal set up by my friend Hannah Salah in Gaza to raise funds to give a bit of playtime and some treats to children in Rafa as part of an initiative she was running. Um, as you'll hear in the podcast, we raised hundreds of euro yesterday uh, just by putting the appeal out to our members and thank you so much to our members for stepping up. But I'm putting it out publicly now because if you can help 180 children with $500, why stop at that? Help as many as we can. So if you want to get involved, click the link at the bottom. The the details are all in the post. Also, if you're in Dublin on January the 28th, that's a Sunday evening, get down to the Sugar Club. We are going live with Podcasts for Palestine. There is a fantastic lineup, a great night's entertainment. And again, all proceeds will be going to Gaza. So as I said, a great night's entertainment for a great cause. Tickets for that are still available on eventbrite.ie. And the link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to. I just want to repeat my sincere thanks to everybody who donated yesterday. It's fantastic. And Hannah was absolutely delighted. Um, As you'll read on the post, thanks again. It really makes all the difference. Because as we say all the time, it's not just a podcast. It is activism. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to PALCAST. Uh, this is Yusuf Jamal speaking to you from Istanbul and today is the 19th of January 2024. It's uh, 3.30 p.m. here and again I'm always very delighted to be joined by my co-hosts uh, Helena Koban, uh, the president of Just World Educational and Tony Groves of the uh, Echo Chamber, a podcast who's joining us from Dublin. Um, today we will talk about democide, which is the case for you know many Palestinians after Israel intentionally um, destroyed entire you know towns, not just neighborhoods, um, and they continue to do so. I just saw another video yesterday of Israeli soldiers celebrating the destruction of another neighborhood in Gaza. In fact, an Israeli soldier who was asked by um, his uh, boss to remove some of the writings on, on the walls of a Palestinian house in Gaza chose to destroy the house completely. And he posted this on, on social media. Um, another soldier uh, was joking that a particular Palestinian house did not have an air, air conditioner and he decided to destroy it. So they're destroying Palestinian houses for fun. And this is very troubling, Tony and, and Helena. Yeah, I'm really thrilled that today we're going to have with us um, somebody with a name that I, I can't quite... Um, ba- Balakrishan, Raja Gopal, but uh, we just go by Raj. <laughs> Okay, who is a UN special rapporteur on the um, right to housing. And hes I think he's the one who actually developed this whole concept of domicide, which is quite, you know, it's, it's separate from but linked to the well-known concept of genocide, because genocide is killing like the whole of a people or killing people in whole or in part because of who they are. But domicide, as I understand it, and I'm really looking forward to learning some more, is the concept of killing people's homes and neighborhoods. And, you know, I just remember our our recent conversation here with Noor Jaudi when she talked 
you know, very movingly about what it means when you lose your home and, you know, which is a home is not just a place of immediate shelter for you. It's a, it's a place where all your memories and your memorabilia are. I mean, in the case of, I, I, just looking at some of the Instagram posts from the Gaza poet Musab Abu Toha, and he has, you know, photos from the old days of his library of treasured books, you know, and our friend Rifat Larir walked around his neighborhood after it had been destroyed. And, and he, you know, showed the kind of the tattered volumes and, you know, little memorabilia and stuff that were just there in the rubble. So this concept of domicide, the, 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 the eradication of home, I think is a powerful one. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, just on 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 the concept of domicide. Yeah, uh, Raj has been one of the people who has pushed it to the forefront, and he's been very vocal. Um, I've been fortunate to I knew his predecessor, Lalani Farah, who spoke about the financialization of housing and how it's becoming an issue globally. But but what's happening in Gaza takes it to a whole other level. Um, and I just want to say, just uh, just just to, this is a little bit of a good news message. Um, one of our one of our friends on the Tortoise Shack for a number of years, Hannah Salah, was uh, sent me a few videos early this morning of children playing yesterday at a, a, a UNRWA um, clinic and they had provided you know biscuits and face painting and, and some music and she and she said to me that they wanted to try and do this um, for some of the kids who were living in tents because they've all been displaced again back to domicile and she, and she said so I asked her um, how much would, how much is it costing to kind of you know get the biscuits get the, the equipment that they needed and she said uh, for for 180 children it would be about $500 so I put a call out this morning only to our um, our members on the, on the tortoise shack and we've doubled that we've raised a thousand dollars so um, and that money is going to go to to oh to that's the- fantastic you know I love those stories of how people are actually not just making do in Gaza but also you know building community restoring community doing what they can to keep the children you know happy and singing and playing and and that is going on yeah. as we speak yeah you know, so yeah no, and, and i just want to say thank you to the listeners because that that's who make that possible but also thank you to hannah salah for for uh for being an absolute gem and a friend of mine for many years and i'm so i'm so glad she 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 uh she she instigated that and uh she knew full well sending me the videos that just like, like you do yusuf you send something to tony tony groves you know he's gonna have to do something with it so but, um, <laughs> yeah it doesn't stop there no exactly uh, but but look, that's, that's wonderful, Tony. Yeah, tell me. No, no, just just back to if I could ask Yusuf though, some of the the big problems we're facing now, as well as this, is the blackout. It's been communications blackout. It's, Absolutely. Um, can we? Can you tell us a bit a bit about your experience of trying to get in touch with people at the moment because it's it's just really really bad. Unless you're in certain areas, forget about so, it. So it's it's all over the Gaza Strip. Um, in the past, we would have a blackout for three, four, five days, uh, but still, like people would be able to text sometimes now, or it could be in the north, not in the south. Now it's all over the Gaza Strip. There is no text, no internet, no telecommunication of any sort. I cannot speak to my family if I try to ring their phones. A million times it's not going to work. I haven't been able to speak to my family for eight days now, and this is the longest since the genocide started, and this is very worrying. We do not know what's going on. Uh, We cannot even 
Israeli forces withdrew from some areas. People cannot tell, you know, what happened uh, to, to their homes. If they, they cannot communicate with anyone to go back and check on their homes. Uh, today, for I think uh, the first um, uh, time in, 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 in five uh, days, I was able to speak to my brother-in-law in, in Rafah. So specifically in Rafah, some people have some connection, but it's very, very difficult. And he has to go here and there, and it's only text. Uh, so for example, my brother-in-law, heard multiple times from multiple sources that his house was demolished and actually he hasn't finished paying the, the loan for, for the house. He's been paying his loan for 12 years now. Uh, and he cannot tell, like he cannot communicate with someone who stayed in the town to go and, and see because Israeli forces, of course, after committing many massacres and destroying multiple houses in the area, they would draw from the uh, northern entrance of an Al-Maghazi refugee camp. So he cannot tell because of this blackout. And if you think of paramedics and, you know, if they, they cannot, they just hear a bombing somewhere, they cannot tell where and they cannot direct their, their ambulances to go and pick up those who were, you know, killed or injured. Uh, so it's all intentional. It's part of isolating Gaza and hindering Palestinians' ability to tell their story. It's, it's part of killing Palestinian journalists too. That's why Israel does so, so that our story doesn't uh, uh, go out to, to the world. And uh, again, and I said this and I will repeat it again, this reminds people that Israel controls Gaza. Israel has always been controlling Gaza from land, sea, and air. They say, oh, we left Gaza in 2005, no, so how, how would you shut down? <laughs> Shut down the internet, fuel, you know, calories you know, in a second. <laughs> you know, things are really terrible for the people of Gaza. And Yusuf tells us, you know, every everything that we hear. But I have just immense admiration for the people of Gaza and their resilience under the under this this terror that they that's being visited on them. I have, was reading recently about the siege of Leningrad which the um you know the nazi armies in those days besieged the big city of leningrad which today is st petersburg for 900 days that is you know two and a half years in the course of that siege and and bombardment of course both they killed 1.7 million people which was essentially 50% of the population both through the bombardments and through the hunger and disease i mean that went on for two and a half years on january 27th exactly 80 years ago january 27th of 1944 the red army was able to break the siege and the nazis were sent scampering back to their homes. In fact, the Nazis lost huge numbers of people and that helped to break the Nazi army. So, you know, I want to send a, a shout out to the, the people of, of Leningrad as they mark the, the 
80th year of the lifting of their horrible, horrible siege. And I'm just, you know, wishing for my friends in Gaza that the, the end of their terrible siege and bombardment comes much, much sooner than 900 days. I just one other quick point we want to make is that a few months ago, the whole world was, you know, in shock about the bombing of a hospital and who bombed the hospital. They're saying, as as Biden said, I heard it was the other team and all of this went on and all of this behavior that went on. And now we find out in the last 24 hours that now all 36 hospitals are have been bombed and, and taken out of commission. And we've become almost normalized to the idea that, that um, this is, we've gone from, you know, oh, we didn't do it to, we've actually done it to them all. They're all gone now. It's it's a shocking development and it's it's taken us only a few months to get to this level. Um, Yusuf, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think it's something that the world needs to wake up to, that we, you know, how quickly we've become accustomed to this, uh, these war crimes. I absolutely agree with you. It's really sad because if you remember uh, Helena and Tony, when Gaza had its first blackout for a single day, everyone was talking about it. It was all over the media. The international telecommunication body, uh, you know, spoke to Israel about it and they said, we will restore telecommunication as soon as possible. Now it's been eight days it's not even mentioned in the media. So this is Israel's strategy. What step by step, the same as they expand settlements in the West Bank, step by step. Now settlements are expanding crazy, by the way, because no one is talking about settlements in the West Bank. But this is a different and there's issue. a, sh- a so, massive battle in Tul Karam in, in yeah. the West Bank. I mean, the uh, what I read was that the Israeli military have actually been in engaged in open battle there for more than thirty five hours. Yeah, you know, and I don't even know how many how many casualties there are. So, you know, we have to look at the West Bank. So as yeah, part they of this. they never miss an opportunity to expand and control and and take over more Palestinian homes and destroy more Palestinian homes. Uh, uh, so speaking of again, go back to uh, democide. I saw two troubling videos. One is of an Israeli soldier who was posting, you know, the background was a destruction of a Palestinian neighborhood to the east of Gaza. And he wrote in Arabic, he knows Arabic, or someone helped him write in Arabic, that the temple will rise from the ruins of Gaza. Remember, this is for the ICJ and the ICC. (laughs) It's all intentional. And they do not, again, shy away from that. Two, the Isra um, uh, University in Gaza was also demolished. And it was controlled planned demolition. So they planted mines all over the university. There was no danger uh, whatsoever for the military to say that, oh, it was like bombed by, you know, an airstrike. Someone was hiding there, as they always say. No, they went inside. They found, found nothing. They stole... 3,000 antiques from from the university, and now God knows at which Israeli museum they are. And this reminds us of what happened in in, in 1948. You know, thousands of Palestinian antiques and uh, archaeological, you know, discoveries and pieces were taken to Israeli uh, museums, but this is something we can talk about later. But again, so we have and, these and, pe- books, and books and I books. I mean, entire mm-hmm. libraries. 
Yeah, and they demolished the the uh, entire university completely. And this is not the first university to be, to be demolished. Al-Isra, the Islamic University. In fact, they rebombed the Islamic University, which they destroyed yesterday again. Uh, Al-Azhar University, Al-Quds Open University, and hundreds of UNRWA schools. Um, so I'm really like terrified everything-wise. How are we going to rebuild all these, you know, academic institutions? What are students going to do during this time? There should be a transition period for students, uh, especially natural science students. They cannot just, you know, study from home. It's not online. I mean, even if it's online, we need the infrastructure to have internet. The Israel destroyed everything, like completely made Gaza a wasteland. But actually, I think this provides a really important challenge for the international community. I think I've been arguing for, for several months now that the United Nations Security Council needs to say the task of rebuilding Gaza, the universities, the homes, the schools, the basic infrastructure, everything is going to have to be rebuilt from scratch. And plus, first of all, you have to do something with all that rubble, which contains human remains and which contains perhaps many toxic chemicals from the munitions. So it's going to be a huge job of clearing and then rebuilding. And I think the United Nations needs to take charge of this this task, not have it be as it was after each of the previous Israeli or a much smaller Israeli assaults on Gaza, that Israel was still able uh, after each of those previous assaults Israel was still able to control everything that went in and out and to keep iron control of the whole of the Strip. At this point, I think the United Nations Security Council needs to say the, the military occupation of Gaza by Israel needs to end, and we as an international community in partnership with the Palestinian people will start to build the Palestinian state here in Gaza free of Israeli control. I just... I Let's hope. <laughs> I want to make just again a couple of newsy points. So sorry, but um, one is the the news came out yesterday. The European Parliament had called for a ceasefire. I want to say that that wasn't really the case at all. Um, yeah, so everybody thought that again it was really warmly welcomed. But there was a an amendment put forward by the EPP, the European People's Party, which is the member, our government, Fine Gael. They are members of this and they all voted for this amendment. And in the amendment, it was that, you know, the ceasefire was conditional on the dismantling of Hamas and the returning of all the hostages. So essentially, something that can't be, you can't square now, no no ceasefire right now unless all Israel's demands are met. And then the second thing was an amendment that they that they voted to block because the other amendment was... It urged all parties to fully respect and implement any decision, provisional measures that the ICJ may order as or as required by the ICJ statute. And that amendment did not pass. It was blocked by members of the EPP and and and, and, the, and the largest grouping in the European Parliament. So while the headlines all looked good, everybody's probably after only reads below, below the, the the headline. They don't realise that a the call for the ceasefire is not actually enforceable because they've given Israel a carte blanche to continue as is and then even the idea of asking Israel to to um, adhere to international law 
we said, well, we, we're actually not willing to, to actually add that as an amendment. So, sorry, Helena, I know you thought there was something there. There, there was no... The, the good news is, as, is that the bad news is probably uh, still, still, still bad news for a, much, for a good bit longer. Tony, I am so glad we have you there as our man in the EU, because honestly, you know, you've just helped really clarify things. You know, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., um, on the land of the Piscataway people here in the United States. And obviously, the, the political news here is unrelievedly bad from the point of view of continued support by all branches of the U.S. government for Israel's attack in Gaza. Um, but I think globally, the news is that the Western countries, that's kind of the EU and, and the United States and Australia and, and other settler colonial countries like that white, the white world that constitutes 12% of humanity, by the way, only 12%. They've been able to, to exercise hegemony over all this Arab-Israeli peacemaking for the last 50 years, but they are increasingly isolated. And I think, you know, we should keep our eyes on that ICJ case and on the wonderful case that the, uh, the, that the South African team was able to, uh, to prepare and, you know, present with the, with their, the help from their Irish friends. Um, but, you know, Things are changing globally, and I think you know we'll get that ceasefire and we'll get that the end of the Israeli occupation as soon as the global community can pull it together and bring the white countries um, into line with the so-called remember that the rules-based order. <laughs> <laughs> Tony and Helena, I, I just need you to help me understand one thing. Now they destroyed Gaza. They destroyed our homes. They, you know, they caged our bodies. But why are they destroying graveyards in Gaza? Like this is something is very difficult to comprehend. Dead people, like they, they claim to have information that some Israeli hostages are buried in Gaza's graveyards. Let's assume this is true, although there is no evidence to this whatsoever. So far, they never found a body inside um, a graveyard. They, they, um, you know, raised uh, entire graveyards uh, to the ground, uh, including, you know, the graveyards of, 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 of you know, people and families uh, that, that I personally uh, know. So what they, what they do, they come to graveyards and then they open the graves and they look, they get the bodies out, especially like freshly, like recently, newly uh, buried bodies. And if it's not an Israeli hostage, then they leave it. They, they do not put it back. They, that's not their job. I mean, this is redefinition of savagery, as uh, one of our guests, Baha al Hilo, earlier said. I don't, Yusuf, I don't have an answer for you. I know I've heard reports that they've dug up bodies, uh, to check, to take DNA samples to, to see if there, if there's some members are, are, you know, are people who were perhaps among the hostages. But I've also seen the barbarity of it. And as you said, it's desecration is the word we use when you desecrate a grave, someone's resting place. That's what they, that's what they've done. Um, and they've done it for not just 
during this conflict they've been doing it for a long time we have seen reports of 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 this of this behavior for a number of years now um we've also seen reports and i don't want to be so gory as to say that you know there's been talk talk of even when people were in in detention that they may have been used perhaps to to harvest organs and the likes of this so bodies themselves can be can be uh turned into economic units and now there's no thankfully and i mean this in, in the most small t thankful there's no way you know if bodies are lying in in the ground they're not coming to take organs from these because you know they, there's no there's no reusing them after a certain time well, god this is an awful conversation but the truth is it's, it's it is that grim helen that we're here we are now saying they've dug up graves and then they're but as yusuf says they're doing it on the basis that they're saying they have the right to do it because someone told them that there might be a hostage here. But if that was the case, they've been doing this for years and we've known they've been doing this for years. Uh, so it's not a new thing. And I, I don't have an answer to you. Uh, just, I also just think it's something else that we need to add to the list of crimes. Yeah, Yusuf asked us, you know, why are they doing this? I mean, in a sense, I think that was a rhetorical question. It, it's impossible to give an answer like, why are they doing this? They're doing it because they are totally, you know, deranged and inhuman. But as Tony noted, they have been desecrating cemeteries for quite a long time, including a, a very historic ancient Muslim cemetery in Jerusalem, which they they built over it and destroyed a good part of it in order to build something called the Museum of Tolerance. I mean, you know, that that is just outrageous. I think what they're trying to do, you know, in in this regard, as with, you know, destroying people's homes and the whole domicide thing, is just to erase every every trace that there were ever Palestinian people, Palestinian culture, Palestinian lives, Palestinian families here on this land. And um, as we know, that is not going to succeed. You know, this reminds me of 1948 and what happened to the graveyard to our town and of, of our town. Um, it's it's the same, you know, concept, but it's like a different method of covering Palestinian history. They brought sand and they covered the entire, uh, you know, graveyard with sand, and they turned it into a place where um, they where settlers who live nearby have bar uh, barbecue <laughs> and parties. Um, but thankfully, the the some of the graves or bodies are still there, like in the grave. Uh, yeah, they, they did not disappear. And I think they feel annoyed when a Palestinian tells them that, oh, my grandfather, and I saw this recently, actually in the US two months, three months ago, um, Palestinian reminded uh, an Israeli who happened to be in the audience that my gra the grave of my grandfather is in Zerot. It's a mile away in Hoj. This is how Palestinians call Zerot. Uh, it's in the graveyard and I live a mile away in, in a refugee camp in Gaza and I cannot visit him. Oh, okay. We're now going to go to the uh, UN special reporter uh, on housing, uh, Raj Bal, who is joining us to talk about democide in, in, in Gaza. And in fact, he was one of the first people uh, to highlight this concept, and it's been being used uh, since then by uh, many other um, experts. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. 
Not at all. Look, we are delighted that you, you've given us the time again to have a quick conversation. Um, just, just if we can, for listeners who who are unaware, who didn't hear yours the last time, and maybe you're unfamiliar, you have been pushing for the crime of domicide to be included uh, in international law. Just give us a quick overview, very briefly, if you don't mind, about what domicide is and why it should be considered a, a crime against humanity, in effect. Sure. Uh, well, what I have advocated for, uh, starting with my report to the General Assembly last year, when Russia was bombing Ukraine, is that uh, domicile should be recognized as an international crime of its own standing. And uh, by domicile, what I have actually tried to uh, sort of advocate for is the recognition that when systematic or deliberate uh, or widespread uh, destruction of housing takes place, uh, it must be recognized as a standalone crime. Um, uh, of course, the destruction of particular houses is already regulated and prohibited under humanitarian law in the sense that you cannot attack a house during armed conflict. They're supposed to enjoy a protected status. Uh, so you have to show military necessity or some other rationale particular for attacking particular houses. but when you destroy an entire neighborhood or wipe out an entire city, in fact, it is not a crime under international law of its own standing. So that's a very odd situation to be in, a huge gap in international law. And uh, therefore, uh, after uh, going through an extensive process of uh, studies and consultation with experts and others, uh, what I've done is that um, to advocate for inclusion of domicile as a crime, because it's not uh, just Gaza now, which is, of course, the most extreme case of domicile in recent memory that I've seen. But also, you know, think of what Russians did to Mariupol. Think of Aleppo and Homs, you know, in Syria. Think of uh, in numerous other communities and towns that were obliterated by the Myanmar regime. So I could go on giving yeah. examples of recent memories. But it's just become too obviously, you know, um, destructive in recent memory. So we have to account for this. We have to make sure that people, the, the, the destruction of housing cannot continue in this manner. The Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor published today a very worrying um, statistic saying that 69,700 housing units were completely destroyed in Gaza. Um, this means that about 400,000 Palestinians uh, will definitely be homeless if the genocide stops in, in, in Gaza today. Um, what's what's the plan for, for Gaza once the genocide ends in terms of housing? How will people, you know, survive uh, the harsh winter um, conditions and the lack of food. But on the top of that, democide that ravaged their neighborhoods one after another. That is an enormous challenge, the likes of which I think uh, we have not faced in recent memories. Um, there are, as uh, I have noted in my Twitter accounts, um, you know, uh, vast, vast number of tent cities that have actually propped up along the border with Rafa to accommodate a number of people, almost a million people or more, maybe housed there in extraordinarily inadequate conditions, 
during windy uh, and uh, wet uh, winter weather, uh, that itself is actually a huge problem. And um, so in terms of how we go forward, well, the first obvious need is uh, shelter, which is different from housing, which is especially adequate housing. But shelter needs are humanitarian and need to be provided immediately for human survival. Um, and that is not being met at the moment. Uh, and secondly, uh, if people have uh, to be able to go back to uh, where their homes once stood and they've all been destroyed, uh, the level of destruction is nothing less than biblical uh, in the sense that uh, more than uh, close to uh, 65 to 70% of the housing all over Gaza has been destroyed, destroyed. And in many parts of northern Gaza, uh, up to 82% may have been destroyed from satellite data that we can see. So it's a, it's a level of destruction that even uh, other cities in recent memory, like Aleppo, for example, did not go through. Mm. After three years of bombing, for example, in Aleppo, about 37% of housing had been destroyed. So we are talking about the level of destruction. It is orders of magnitude higher than anything that we have seen. So the first immediate need is shelter. But the second immediate, of course, medium to long-term need is uh, rebuilding. Rebuilding involves, of course, the clearing of the rubble itself. So if you take, for example, a city like Rotterdam, which was bombed by the Germans during World War II, it took them almost a year to just clear the rubble. And uh, then, of course, it took 20 years to rebuild uh, Rotterdam to more or less what it had, you know, what it had been. Uh, of course, you know, they had to serve several sort of um, elements of old Rotterdam actually were not rebuilt. For example, the canal system was transformed quite significantly. And uh, so there was, there was a lot of change. So Palestinians will have to face that question as well. When rebuilding, do you want to rebuild the way it was or do you want to rebuild it in a way that honors memory but also captures what is needed for the future? Uh, I'm talking about a task that is going to be uh, uh, enormously expensive, enormously time-consuming, uh, is going to take years and years, if not decades. It's going to also involve, it's going to have to involve Palestinians in thinking about their own future and how the territory should be shaped uh, during rebuilding. These are all critical questions going forward. But uh, all of this, of course, is um, predicated on the necessity that the war stops, the war stops, and that there is a sustainable peace between Israel and Palestine going forward. Uh, because if we have continued to see periodical bouts of bombing and fighting, as we have been seeing in Gaza, uh, this is obviously not the first time that Gaza has been attacked. The last 20 years, it's uh, what the fourth or fifth time now mm -hmm. uh, it's been attacked. So there's got to be some, some, uh, political solution to the underlying sort of disputes. Without that, it's hard to see how a progress towards uh, restoring the respect for right adequate housing can be fully ensured. I like. I really welcome everything you've just said there, but there's also an element missing there in terms of the international community and the role in in because someone has to pay for this as well. <laughs> um, and you know, the 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 UN has been seen to to 
be uh, circumvented in in many ways uh, during this um, during this since October seventh. Um, can I ask you about the international community and how how it can be pressure can be brought to actually make sure not not just that this stops, but that when it stops, that uh, that we we don't go back to the the status quo of uh, as you said. There's been many campaigns, none as none as bad as this, but but this is you know Israel has used in the past that awful phrase mowing the lawn, and they would regularly mow the lawn. How do we how do we assure ensure that, that that's not the, this the, what we return back to? Yes, that's why I said there needs to be a political solution, a clear recognition of the right to self determination of the uh, Palestinian people, and the full recognition of Palestine as a co-equal state uh, and uh, with full respect for its sovereignty and territorial integrity. It's very important. And the second thing, obviously, is that uh, when it comes to rebuilding the shattered Palestine, uh, the responsibilities of various actors have to be uh, uh, taken into account. Uh, The first responsibility is that of Israel itself as an occupying power, and uh, it bears two levels of obligation. First is, of course, as an occupying power, it is responsible under international law for the welfare and protection of the property of those who actually live under occupation. That is clear under the law of occupation. And that it has violated numerous times in gross manner already. But the second sort of uh, responsibility of Israel is the excessive use of force and other breaches of international law that actually have led to a particular sort of catastrophic damage of the kind that we've been discussing. So there are two levels of uh, responsibilities for Israel already as an occupying power. And then there is the responsibility of the rest of the international community, especially states that have supplied political, material, and uh, other military support for the uh, not just the current bout of attacks after October 7th by Israel, but also occupation itself, as well as uh, settlements under international, uh, under uh, Israeli control in uh, West Bank and uh, East Jerusalem, because we're really talking about reforming the state of Palestine. And we have to look at the fact that uh, the settlement system that Israel has established is a gross violation of international law. It's a territorial grab. And uh, the disruption of Palestinian lives and and economic uh, livelihoods, orchards, for example, or Preventing the exercise of full self-determination by Palestinian people is a gross violation of international law. So there is a huge level of responsibility on the part of many states, uh, the main backers of Israel, but also other states that have failed in their obligation to provide assistance to the Palestinian people. So in terms of concretely how we can go forward, I would say that, in fact, you know, uh, time is uh, of the essence here. I would encourage uh, states, especially in the region, to start organizing towards an international conference on rebuilding Gaza to bring together all the key elements that are necessary to uh, bring about all the associated sort of elements that are are, uh, needed for rebuilding Gaza and the rest of the uh, Palestinian territory. Just, just two really quick questions. I know you've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. But one, one point you've you've kind of alluded to there is that there is a onus as well on the states that have sponsored Israel. So we know that the US has has you know continually 
supported Israel to the point where it circumvented its own rules and like they have Lehi laws, they haven't employ- applied them here. They've they've done these things now in the light of the breaches of human rights and the and the bro- breaches of international law. I get the impression that that even if they haven't changed their their policies, they've tried to change some of their some of the the rhetoric around this. Have you have you seen this as as an international human rights lawyer yourself? Have you felt that it's been a trying to trying to ch- distance themselves from some of the acts, if not so much from the policy? Um, I wish I could share that sentiment, but I don't yet see such uh, enough light between the actions and the motivations of Israel and the actions and motivations of the United States. Uh, there is, of course, some lip service being paid to the need to avoid what President Biden called indiscriminate bombing, and uh, as well as the need to protect civilian lives. But um, still, the talking points that the United States is using are the same talking points that Israel is using. For example, while they say that civilians' lives, civilian lives need to be protected, they immediately follow that by saying, but on the other hand, Hamas should not be hiding among civilians. Mm. Uh, so this is exactly the same point that uh, Israel has been uh, making without, of course, offering much in the nature of evidence that, for example, under hospitals, under universities, I mean, they just blew up uh, Gaza's last remaining university just this week. Yep. And uh, what, where is the evidence that Hamas was actually there, and where is the evidence that, in fact, there was a military necessity, not just to defeat Hamas, but to blow up the entire building? Uh, we just don't see that at all. So I, I'm sorry, I, I cannot share that sentiment. I, 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 I'm glad I'm be far more open in distancing itself and repudiating clearly the actions and the statements of Israel, and that is not what I'm saying. I really, really glad you clarified that, and I do think it's really important that people understand the 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 geopolitics to this, but also on the on the on the flip side, you know, you can't call for um, a end to indiscriminate bombing when you are delivering two thousand pound bombs to to the army that's dropping them on the people. That just doesn't make any sense. Last question for me, and it comes back to something you said specifically. Um, on your social media account, I thought it was really relevant that South Africa's case at the ICJ is a harbinger, harbinger of a new world order led by the formerly oppressed and enslaved. Uh, of course, I'm going to I'm going to give a big shout out to our own uh, uh, Lena Nigrana, who was who who took part in 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 the in the case. But nonetheless, um, I wish Ireland had had been a signatory to it. By the way, um, can you just just to talk about that? Did you did, do you feel that? The, that that's where hope is. That's where the future is. That's where change is. I think that uh, it's a very encouraging sign that we are seeing South Africa fill the moral void that currently exists in the world. And moral leadership is a critical part of global leadership. And uh, we all understand that it has been called by numerous terms, including the term soft power. If anything, uh, the rest of the world, meaning the non-Western world, currently has the most soft power in the world. Um, They may or may not be exhibiting it in all instances, but in this particular instance, I feel that uh, they really stepped up to the plate and South Africa has emerged as a leader. And as far as uh, a shift to an alternative world order is concerned, I think uh, that we are, and we have been seeing numerous instances of that happening um, in recent years, and uh, it's inevitable 
that uh, there will be such a move. And as far as uh, the the particular shape in which that order can take place, we have to, of course, wait and see uh, uh, which way it will go. Raj, thank you so much for your time. Thank you on behalf of our listeners. I really appreciate the work, not just that you've... you've um, spoken about here today but the work that you continue to do to advocate for the crime of domicide and indeed against what's happening uh, not just in Gaza, Gaza but as you've spoken to throughout your tenure so thank you for all of that and um, and I hope people get a sense of how important it is that we make sure that, that human rights uh, whether it be a two-state solution or it be you know every because it may be impossible depending where we are where we stand right now whatever it is everybody's right to have international law applied and treated equally is what's crucial here thank you so much really really appreciate it thanks again to Raj for joining us thanks to Yusuf and Helena we've had a few connection problems today but that we overcame because I think that is one of the best podcasts the guys have done uh, thank you so much to you for listening for sharing liking please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts it helps other people find us and if you like what we do if you want to support it it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise it's the price of a fancy cup of coffee to you once a month but for us it keeps the mics on and the conversations like the one you've just listened to keep happening thanks again and we will talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye